Hello, everybody, and welcome back to our next installment of the Ask the Pastor podcast. This is Lead Pastor Brooks Green of Sequoia Baptist Tabernacle, answering some questions that you have submitted, giving some clarification, helping us to dive deeper into the Word. The first question that we're going to consider this evening is, what is the Apocrypha, and why is it not used in churches? I want to state that question again, as it's a twofold question. What is the Apocrypha? And why is it not used in churches? If we're being honest, the Apocrypha actually is being used in churches. It depends on which church you attend and what that church believes about the Bible. Let's talk about what the Apocrypha is and then move forward into that conversation. The Apocrypha were several books, one would say they vary in number, that were written in what we call the intertestamental period. So after the Old Testament concluded, But before the New Testament began, there was this 400-year period of silence after Malachi is written, before Jesus Christ appears on the scene and the world changes as we know it. These works are ascribed to that time period, and there are several. There is 1st and 2nd Esdras, Tobit, Judith, the Wisdom of Solomon, Ecclesiasticus, Baruch, the Letter of Jeremiah, Prayer of Manasseh, 1st and 2nd Maccabees, as well as a couple of additions to the book of Esther and the book of Daniel that are sometimes added on to the books or are given separate titles and stand alone as very short works. As you probably gathered, I have read them, and I will share that the quality of the apocryphal books is greatly different from what we see in the Old Testament and the New Testament. However, these works were included in many of the Bibles that have been prevalent throughout our history as the Church of Jesus Christ. The Catholic Church still has the Apocrypha in that intertestamental gap between the Old and the New Testament, whereas Protestant churches shifted away and removed those pieces sometime around 1828. If you're thinking those dates, wait a minute, 1828, the Bible I use is older than that. You are correct. The original versions of the King James Version did include the apocryphal books. So if you have a very old collector's KJV, you will see that the apocryphal works were still considered and many people took doctrine, teaching, and preaching from these works just as we would other portions of scripture. So let's get to that question of why are they not a part of the scripture? In truth, these books were never considered to be inspired by God. The Hebrew people among whom they were written and circulated never adopted them into their Old Testament or sacred texts. They were always on the outside. Now the content of them in many cases speaks of the same topics and uses the same characters from the Bible but they are certainly not inspired Word of God in that they don't continue to carry on the same communication and the same message as other portions of Scripture. To give you some examples, there are some things in the apocryphal books that are contrasting to other parts of Scripture and even other parts of the apocryphal books. 
Some of the works of the Apocrypha condone the use of magic as opposed to trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ or in the work of angels. The Apocryphal works also teach that forgiveness of sins can come from human effort. In particular, it even teaches the doctrine of giving offerings to pay off the sins of dead people. It's rife with historical errors, even things as simple as when certain kings ruled and in what countries they ruled. Just think of it like this. The apocryphal books were things that were compiled and written by contemporaries of these Old Testament individuals or people who came along within the centuries that followed their earthly life and ministry. And people tried to ascribe value to their works by adding the names of Bible characters who were prominently known, and those works somehow crept their way into the church's traditions. Now again, the church never accepted these to be the historical writings that had the validity of other scripture. They were never treated as inerrant without error. They were never treated as inspired. But there were some groups who, because they were collected with the other works, did indeed accept them. I mentioned the Catholic Church, and I want to loop back to that, because the Catholic Church has kept these books in as part of their scripture, and part of that reasoning was because many of their key doctrines, like prayer to the saints and giving alms for those who had already departed, were based upon these scriptures. And if they were to deny the authenticity or the inspiration of the apocryphal books, some of their church doctrines would collapse. So I hope that I've given you an overview of what the apocryphal books are and why we don't use them. Simply put, those books are not of the same quality and are not written by the author, the Holy Spirit, that the rest of scripture is. The second question we're going to address in this installment of the Ask the Pastor podcast is this. Can the Trinity be proven in the Bible? Again, the question, can the Trinity be proven in the Bible? The short answer to this is going to be, well, it depends on how much stock you place in the validity of the Bible. If you believe the Bible to be without error, truly breathed by God himself, and you can stake your beliefs and faith upon what it says, then the answer is yes, it can be proven in the Bible. If you have questions about whether or not the Bible can be trusted, or if the Bible can be an authoritative and comprehensive source on such things, then the answer is nothing can be proven by the Bible. However, there's still evidence within Scripture that points to not only the existence of the Trinity, but we could go as far as to say the necessity of the Trinity. Let's talk about the Trinity, because this is one of the more difficult and complex concepts in all of the Christian faith. And how we try to process it through our human mind seems to always fall short. It almost seems like something you would hear in science fiction work or see in a sci-fi film. The idea of three persons who actually share their personhood with one another. So they can be in different places at different time, taking on different physical manifestations, but yet they remain the same person. It sounds like 
alien hive minds or things of that nature, it's just beyond human comprehension. And that would make sense because God himself is beyond human comprehension. He's not limited to the same constraints you and I are. I'll give you an example that's not Trinity related. You and I, and even me, when I'm in this episode right now, I'm thinking about time and I need to be timely in my communication. You and I, every day, we live based upon accomplishing things in certain time schedules. To God, time is something he created. He exists outside of the influence of time. He existed before there was a time, and scripture says that he'll declare that time will be no more. So that's beyond our comprehension that someone could exist in a plane where there's not even time. And yes, it's difficult for us to understand how a singular person can exist within three personhoods. That's exactly what we're trying to get at in the Trinity, but it's what the scripture teaches of God. Now there's some things that are key about this I want to bring up for our conversation. Scripture is clear that even though we believe in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, that there is only one God. Deuteronomy 6.4 declares, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. In 1 Corinthians 8.4, the Apostle Paul communicates, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that, quote, there is no God but one, end quote. In Galatians 3.20, now an intermediary implies more than one, but our God is one. And in 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. So scripture is clear that God himself is one God, but it's also true from scripture that this one God exists in more than one personhood. This goes back to the very beginning of scripture. Genesis 1.1, we probably quoted it many times, even if you're not a faithful church attender, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That word God there is the Hebrew word Elohim, and Elohim is a plural term. That's why it's translated as such as a plural term in other portions of Genesis. Later in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, God says, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Did you get that? Let us make man in our image after our likeness. God refers to, refers to himself in the plural form. Genesis 3:22. The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. God is only speaking to himself because at this point he has only created Adam and Eve. This is not just true of the Genesis account. If you progress it forward into Isaiah 6, 8, Isaiah declares, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? So understand, the very term that is so prevalent of God in the Old Testament is a plural form. And when God is speaking to himself, he is speaking using terms that you and I would equate in English to us and our. The Trinity is evident at the baptism of Jesus. If you remember the scriptural accounts in the gospel, when Jesus is baptized, as soon as he comes out of the water, there's a voice from heaven declaring, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And spectators see the heavens open, and the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, 
descending like a dove and coming to rest on Jesus. Continuing further, Paul was very adamant in the teaching of the New Testament church in 2 Corinthians 13, 14. He's closing out that work and says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Maybe nothing more prevalent than Jesus' command at the end of Matthew's gospel, the Great Commission. In Matthew 28:19, he tells his followers, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Very clear from Jesus to the Apostle Paul, to the prophet Isaiah, all the way back to the creative work when God himself is speaking to and of himself, that God exists in three personhoods. The members of the Trinity are distinguished from one another in various passages. Without going into a belaboring point of reading all of those to you, suffice it to say that there are instances when the Lord Jesus Christ is speaking of his Father and declaring that they are both God, that they are both one. There are plenty of instances where Lord Jesus Christ is speaking of the Holy Spirit and referencing him as a separate person from he and God the Father. It's important for us to note that each member of the Trinity is God. The Father himself, God the Father, is God. Jesus is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. Don't just take my word for it. In John 6:27, Scripture says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. That's the Father being referenced as God. In John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, capitalized as a proper noun for Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There's the Father is God, and Jesus is God. Now the Holy Spirit starts to become more prominent and prevalent when you get into the book of Acts, after Jesus' ascension and his sending of the Holy Spirit to indwell believers. In Acts chapter 5, there's an instance in the early church where two people have decided to sell their property and give some of the money to the church, but keep some back for themselves. And they told the church, yes, we gave all, this is the amount for which we sold the house. And when Peter confronted them, he says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? Why is that you have lied to God? He says specifically, you haven't lied to man, but to God. So the Holy Spirit is identified as God. The Son, Jesus, is identified as God. And God the Father is, of course, identified as God. Now, they serve different tasks and different purposes. They are subordinated one to another to accomplish God's will throughout human history and in building his kingdom. But it is clear that the Holy Spirit is just as much God as the Son is just as much God as the Father is just as much God. But again, it's difficult for us to process because there's only one of you and you don't exist in multiple personages. Even your children or your grandchildren may have some of your characteristics, but they're distinctly different from you. When we try to process the Trinity through any kind of a human means, they always fall short. 
I would share with you some of the most common ones that I've heard and seen are using an egg and trying to say, well, the egg is an egg, but it has a shell and it has the white and it has the yolk. And while that kind of conveys some of the idea, the big challenge is, is none of those are actually the egg. They're parts of an egg. Same thing you might have with an apple, as many people try to use the peel of the apple and the, the seeds core as well as the fruity middle part, that this would be a good representation of the Trinity. But if you take any one of those pieces alone, they don't completely consume what constitutes an apple or what constitutes an egg. Some people try to use water as a good demonstration, that water can take on different forms like liquid, or it can be vapor, or if you make it cold enough, it can be solid. That may be a little bit closer, but understand that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not forms of God. Each of them is God. An infinite God cannot fully be described by a finite illustration. It's one of those things that just goes beyond what we can understand through our human eyes and human minds. But yes, scripture is very clear. There is one God who exists in three persons, and that's what we define as the Trinity. I hope that you've received some benefit from our time together today in the Ask the Pastor podcast. Please submit questions for our next session. I look forward to hearing from you and communicating the truth of God's word with you in this format. May God bless you.